Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning. Um, just really thankful to be here, and uh, we have been very warmly welcomed. My wife, Michelle, and our three kids were here in the 9 a.m. service. They've gone now, uh, but uh, they say hello. Uh, my wife, Michelle, and we've got Indy, Jude, and Patty are our little, little green team. And um, we, yeah, we're just so thankful to be here. Um, I, when I come here, I was driving here this morning, and my heart was just overflowed with thanksgiving because uh, this church has been ex- incredibly formational for me. Grew up here as a very young boy, went through all the hard years, youth, you know, all those teenage years and all of that. And I had people love me, care for me, pray for me, you know, through the 20s, got married, um, and then even into ministry. And there's been people here that I saw both in the first service and this service that have journeyed with me. And so, so blessed to be raised in a church like this. Um, hello from City Reach West as well. Um, we've been praying for you every Sunday night. We've been praying for you when we gather for our prayer meeting uh, for the new senior pastor search that you have. And so we've, everyone's aware of it at City Reach West and we're praying and asking that God will rise, raise up the right man for this church to lead you in the next season. Well, I've been asked to talk about mission this morning, and uh, it's a huge topic, it's an important topic because it really deals with the question, uh, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing as a church? And it's amazing how easily we can, uh, you know, forget what that thing we're supposed to be doing is, how we can lose an answer to that question. There's a number of problems that we face when it comes to mission. I think the first one is mission drift. In fact, a lot of businesses, organizations, and people are often talking about this problem, that you start out with a particular purpose in mind, but bit by bit, things happen, and gradually, all of a sudden, you look up, and you've drifted from your original mission. Now, let me just give you an example of this. This is the original mission statement of the YMCA, the Young Men's uh, Christian Association. So I'll get everyone to stand up and we'll do the... No, we won't. We won't do the one. But this is their original mission statement from 1844. Our object is the improvement of the spiritual condition of the young men engaged in houses of businesses, business by the formation of Bible classes, family and social prayer meetings. This was their original uh, mission statement. The amazing thing about the YMCA is they sent out 20,000 missionaries into the world. They're an incredible ministry. Uh, but after World War II, there was a bit of a decline in interest. I think people were discouraged from the war, and then there was a decline in revenue in the YMCA, so the leaders got together. What should we do to try and keep the doors open? And so they make certain decisions, and just, you know, bit by bit, it sort of changes the organisation, and pretty much now the YMCA is just a family fitness centre. This is totally different from its original mission. And that, that is a problem, I think, for mission, is that we have the tendency to drift. We do as Christians, we do as churches. We, we get distracted with all kinds of different things in our personal life and in the church. That's one problem when it comes to mission. There's another one, I think, and that is mission guilt. Mission guilt. You ever feel guilty that you're not on mission? That you should have been on mission that you haven't? I was reading an article recently about army veterans who uh, never got to see combat. And they were trained up, they were equipped, they were prepared for war, but they never actually got deployed to the front line. And this article was talking about how a lot of veterans like that, they suffer from mission guilt because they were trained up and ready, but they were never deployed. And I think that can be another problem when it comes to mission. 
is that as Christians, we're trained up, we're equipped, we have all this knowledge, but we suffer a bit of guilt because we've never actually made it to the front lines. We've never really shared Jesus with other people. You know, we've, we've sort of shrunk back at times and lacked courage when it comes to sharing our faith. Well, there's a third thing, and I think that is mission fear. Now, we know because Jesus said this to his disciples that we're not in neutral territory. Uh, Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst the wolves. And uh, we've seen that recently. We saw just a few weeks ago, there was a man over in Melbourne who got appointed to the Essendon Football Club CEO position for one day. And then they found out what his church taught and that he was the leader of that, or the chairman of that board of that church. And so there was this pressure on him. And so within one day, he had to resign. And we sort of look at things like that. And we think, oh man, is that what the conditions are like if I share my faith, if I, if I go public with my faith? Maybe I'm going to be devoured by the wolves. You know, so we suffer from mission uh, fear. These are powerful reasons why some of us never go on mission. Mission drift, mission guilt. We feel bad that we've never really deployed and also mission fear. What if I go and people reject me? Well, I want us to have a, a look at Jesus' underlying motivation for mission. In Matthew 9, it says that Jesus was walking along, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this verse, it tells us a lot about the heart of God for the world, doesn't it? That God is a God of compassion for the world. And particularly Jesus, when Jesus came into the world, his heart was stirred for the lost. In fact, this word compassion, it actually means to have a yearning in the gut. It's something that stirred so deeply within him. And the reason it did was because he looked at people who were helpless and harassed and he saw that there was no one to shepherd them. No one to shepherd them like like. Like Jesus, the good shepherd who leads people into green pastures and beside still waters. Uh, you see people like this in, the people in your travels, don't you? People who are helpless, people who are harassed. You know, just recently I had this big fight happen out the front of my house and I went out there to see what was going on and I went and had a chat to some of these young guys and as they were looking at me with aggression in their eyes, I looked into their eyes and I saw hopelessness. Helplessness, people who, are, who have no idea which way is up or which way is down. Another guy that I've been meeting with recently who's messed around in the occult in his life, believes he has an evil spirit, and he wants to hold on to it, doesn't want to leave, doesn't want it to leave. And you look at people like this and you think, man, these people who have gone searching for something, they've gone out there looking for some sort of meaning or purpose, but they are people who are helpless and harassed. And then there's other people who don't know that they're helpless and harassed. In fact, they look quite successful in life. They're chasing money, possessions, and pleasure, and all the different things in this world. They don't, might, might not know that they're helpless and harassed yet. But these are people who are looking in all the wrong places to find an identity, to find a worth, to find pleasure and meaning, and all these things. And so we actually, if we're going to go on mission, we, actually, we have to look through the eyes of Jesus. And we have to have compassion. If we're going to go on mission, we can't have a, well, that serves you right sort of mentality. 
you know, for the choices that you've made. Or, or we can't be complacent, we can't turn a blind eye. You know, sometimes when you see that sort of stuff happen in your neighbourhood, people who are complex and have issues and they're fighting in your neighbourhood, you're like, I just want my neighbourhood to be clean and, and nice and not have problem people like that. And sometimes we have that attitude towards the helpless and harassed. We can have that mentality and that keeps us away from the mission, but we, you know, we have to be people who are stirred in the gut for the lost because hell is real, a Christless eternity is real, people are broken, people are struggling, and there is something so much better in this life. There is a hope that we have that people need. So we need to be stirred in our hearts for the lost and for the broken. And you notice here in this passage that the compassion that Jesus has, it doesn't stay within him. It actually sparks into some action. Just have a look at verse 37. It's like he gathers his disciples around together and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So here's the action. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the good news that you actually get from this verse is that there is actually a harvest among hopeless people. There's a harvest for God. You know, sometimes we look at ho hopeless people and we think, man, they'll never come to Christ. Those people are so hard and hopeless and helpless, they'll never, they're harassed, so many complex problems, they'll never come to Christ. No, no, that's where the harvest is. You see what Jesus saw? He saw a harvest of hopeless and helpless people. And he said, it's from among them that there is a harvest. So we have to change our thinking on that. He says that the problem is, is that there's a lack of workers. And he states it as a term of economics. If there is a bumper crop and there's you know, all, all kinds of you know, harvest ready to come in, but there's not enough workers to go in, then the crops will spoil. And so it's a, it's a problem of workers. And so he says to the disciples, pray, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for evangelizing disciples. Disciples to go into the harvest to bring in the harvest. And I think the answer to that prayer comes in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. He says to the disciples right before he leaves to ascend to heaven, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is saying to them, be the answer to your own prayer. Isn't that often the case? We pray for things, but we're the answer to our own prayer. We actually have to step in and actually share our faith. And so I think, I think that he's saying to them here, the mission is going to continue after, I, after I'm gone. In fact, the disciples were very confused about that. How is it going to continue after, after we're gone? What, what are we going to do, Jesus, once you're gone? Well, Jesus is saying, it's going to be you. Your plan A, you're going out into the harvest to bring them in. How is it going to happen? It's through compassionate, praying, stirred up, evangelizing disciples. That is God's plan A. There's no plan B for the harvest. It's us. I love that, that the Lord is actually willing to use us. God could do anything that he wants, but he wants to use us for us to partner with him to go into uh, the mission. And I think that tells us something very important about what we ought to be doing in our churches. We can't, and we all have to confront this about ourselves because we have a tendency to do this, we can't just be Sunday attenders to church and just see our, our kind of, that, that, that approach to ministry. We, we can't have that, where we just come to church and we just get fed and then we go home and it makes diff no difference in our life. 
We have to be dynamic communities of prayer, praying together with one another, uh, followers of Jesus together, being trained up and equipped to be able to go out, to be a church that's scattered out into the world uh, to make other disciples of Jesus. As I said, we have all kinds of objections to this, do we? don't we? Like, I'm not the evangelist type, and we do know that there are gifted evangelists. Like, some people, when they share their faith, it just seems to work. <laughs> they seem to be gifted, and people respond to it, and they have a unique passion and energy for reaching the lost, and I think that that's a thing. I think that's a thing. But I think all disciples evangelize. All disciples are called to share their faith, to give an answer for the hope that we have, First Peter tells us. And so there's a helpful thing, I think, if we're going to be discipling evangelists, there's a helpful thing. Rico Teese, the guy who sort of sets up Christianity Explored, he has this paradigm that I think is helpful. The first thing we need to realize is God's sovereignty. You notice in Matthew chapter 9, the way Jesus described the harvest, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. So it's not our harvest, and it's not up to us. We're not the ones who, you know, rule over the harvest. We can't control the harvest. We don't know who's going to come in and when. God is sovereign over the harvest, and that's a very freeing thing for us. That means that I'm not walking around uh, having to put all the pressure on myself to bring in the harvest, and neither are you. We trust God, and we pray to God who is sovereign and rules over uh, the harvest. So we don't need to be afraid. God's sovereign over my life, even if we were to you know, face persecution for sharing our faith. We trust God who's in control of all things. We don't need to be guilty as if it all depends on me because it is his harvest. So that's the first thing. We have to know as we go as discipling evangelists that God is sovereign. Secondly, we do need gospel integrity. So you do actually need to preach the truth. You can't hide all the hard stuff like, you know, God is a holy God and we're sinners and there's judgment coming on sinners. You can't do that. And unfortunately, that's happening a lot because we're trying to create clubs and communities of people that just, I don't know, dislike hanging out together and singing. But we actually need to be sharing the truth. Otherwise, we'll create false converts, people who believe they're saved, but they're not. So we need gospel integrity. But the third thing is what I want to focus on a bit more this morning, and that is our intentionality. We're called go and make disciples. And that involves our own creativity, because not every one of us are preachers or, you know, really extroverted or have, you know... um, we all have different gifts. We all have different um, personalities and ways that we think about things. So there's a lot of creativity that we can use in our evangelism. Uh, the Apostle Paul has had some creativity in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 and 22. Let me read it. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that all possible means I might save some. Now the point is, he thought about it, didn't he? He thought about the mission. He thought about the audience that he was trying to reach, and he actually adjusted. He was creative in the way that he reached those particular people. And I think that's really important for us to not just think about the way we like to do it, but to think about our audience, what's going to be suitable Uh, for the audience that we're reaching. So I think that in the centre here, this is the place of compassionate, courageous, guilt-free mission. When we're trusting God's sovereignty, it doesn't depend on us. Gospel integrity, we're not hiding back from the truth. And our intentionality and creativity, I think that's the sweet spot, where we find compassionate, 
courageous and an intentional um, uh, mission. Now, I didn't want to come this morning and talk about mission without giving you some practical things. What are, what, what are some helpful, practical things? So I want to give you six things that I think will help us to be, think about becoming discipling evangelists or evangelizing disciples. Now, I want to say up front, uh, these aren't earth-shattering things and you've heard them before. So don't be like, oh man, that's like elementary. It is elementary, it is. So here's the first one. The first one is this, is your own personal relationship with Jesus. Your own personal relationship with Jesus. That is fundamental. It is foundational to being a disciple who is on mission. And the reason is, is because you can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. So if you don't have an intimate, thriving, worshipful relationship with Jesus where you are uh, being reminded of his stabilizing love, that you're not accepted on the basis of your works, even your evangelizing works, but you're accepted on the basis of Jesus and his righteousness, you're reminded of the gospel, you're reminded of the fact that you were somebody who was weak, helpless and harassed, and Jesus out of his compassion for you came for you, and saved you, it's, it, when your heart, if your heart's not burning for that, you're not gonna share that with others. And so you need, you need a thriving relationship with Jesus. The more we get to know him, the more we'll want to share him with others. So that's the first place. And I encourage you to think about that. The place of worship in your heart. Do you need to rebuild the altar of worship in your heart again? I was listening last night on, uh, on Spotify to an a instrumental um, version of that old song, The Heart of Worship. Remember that song? I'm coming back to The Heart of Worship, and it's all about you, Jesus, all about you. It really struck my heart, because I know I have the tendency to drift, drift away from my love for the Lord, and, and therefore drift away from the mission of God. But it's about coming back to the heart of worship. That's where the mission begins, because we're reminded of God's mission to us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we need a prevailing culture of prayer in our churches. Prevailing culture of prayer. You know, prayer must be the engine room of every home and every church if we're going to be on mission. And I think a really important example or lesson that we learn is from Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, there's this situation. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration with his three close followers. And down on the plains, the rest of the nine disciples, they're going about the ministry and the mission of Jesus. And Jesus has already anointed them with power, so they've been able to do all these kinds of miracles and things. But a father comes up and brings his demon-possessed son up to the disciples to ask them to heal the boy. And the disciples try to heal him, but they can't. They have before, but in this situation, they can't heal him. And Jesus comes down and finds out what's going on and he heals the boy. And then later on, the disciples are with Jesus and they say, why couldn't we drive the demon out? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus looks at them and teaches them a very important lesson. He says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. By anything but prayer. And I think the lesson that Jesus was teaching them was, guys, you've gone on autopilot. You said it on all apart. You thought that you could do ministry without me. I was gone for six days. And you started to think, yeah, we got this. We got this covered. I can say, you know, my clever things the way I say it and the way we've said it before and expect the same results. 
We need an active, living, now kind of dependence upon prayer. And that's how your church, that's how our families, that's how we will be on mission, is to have a prevailing culture of prayer in the church. And this is important because we get discouraged in prayer, don't we? Because we pray and then it doesn't seem like anything happens. But it's so important to keep on praying, keep on praying, because you, you know those stories, you hear of people, who just, we just prayed for 20 or 30 years and then finally, finally God worked and opened this person's heart. We don't know when God is going to work, so we just need to keep on praying. Thirdly, we need to build authentic relationships. I told you these weren't novel ideas. We need to build authentic relationships. Uh, it's not saying that there won't be random kind of spontaneous evangelism. I thought it was awesome to hear that you guys are going and just handing out um, Gospels of John. Who knows who's going to receive that, those things in the houses? They might be in their wit's end. People might be at their wit's end. They receive this Gospel. Someone actually cares for them. It's the only contact they had with anyone that week. And they decide to sit down this evening and read it and learn about God's love. So random spontaneous evangelism is a good thing. Uh, I was talking to Tom Edwards, who uh, leads City Reach Church in Canberra, and they have this team of people who are going to the shopping centre every week, and they're handing out tracts and gospels and things like that. And uh, he said to me uh, just this last week that one of the guys on his team was just sitting there at the table, the store, and he decided to just start reading, uh, reading out Mark's gospel, just from chapter one, just start reading it out. And not obnoxiously, you know, but just, just reading it out so that people could hear. And he said that um, these two big buff guys, like footy players, like came walking up and they're like, what's this guy doing? And ended up sitting there for half an hour, just listening to them read the gospel. And they took their details and who knows what will happen. But spontaneous evangelism is, there's definitely a place for it. But I think one of the best ways is for us to build authentic relationships with people. And the key to this is to know that the purpose of that relationship is not so that you can convert them. Not, not so that you can convert them, it's just to love them. Because love is an end in itself. Just to love, again, we're not responsible for the mission, but to love people, that's the purpose of the relationship. And we see this in Jesus uh, himself. I, I was, happened to be reading the rich young ruler, the, the encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it says, I noticed in the text, it said, Jesus said to him, uh, Jesus, it's a, it says in the text, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's what he said, he looked at him and loved him. The thing that struck me about that is I'm pretty sure Jesus knew that the rich young ruler was going to reject him. So he knew that the ruler was going to walk away because he couldn't give his possessions away. But he still loved him. And that is the purpose of building authentic relationships. Love people because love is an end of itself. Love them because they're made in the image of God and they're worthy of love. That's so important. We can't make people feel like a project. Sometimes people sniff that out. I was saying, my, my two boys, when I go out to play football with them in the backyard, they can tell when I'm trying to turn them into an AFL star. <laughs> they're like, Dad, stop training us. You know, because it's... It's actually better when we just have fun and they can sense my love for them. And so we just need to, we need to love people. That's how we build authentic relationships and use your creativity in thinking about how you can show the love of Christ to them. The fourth thing is to share your story. Share your story. I think this is such a powerful thing. 
is that we don't just share the gospel just in abstract terms, like here's the facts of the gospel that will come, but I think it's really important to share the facts of the gospel as it relates to your personal story. How did Jesus change your life? And it doesn't have to be, I once was a mass murderer, now I'm an angel. It doesn't have to be that. In fact, you'd be in jail if you were a mass murderer, so you won't be able to do that. But, you, but it, it doesn't have to be that because that's not the gospel story. You have to show how you came to a place of understanding that God is your holy creator, that you're accountable to him, that only Jesus saves, and that you're walking with him daily, and it hasn't made your life everything perfect work out in your life, but you're actually trusting him and you have hope for now and for the future. So share your story. Uh, fifthly, we need to ask deeper questions. Ask deeper questions. Engage conversationally that takes things from small talk to deeper things, like what's the best thing that has happened to you in the last year? What's the worst thing that has happened to you in, the, in this last year? You're going to find out all kinds of information there that you can work with. Well, actually, I lost my job and my mum died. And so it's just been this like one thing to the next in my life at the moment. We've really just been sort of hanging on by a thread. Listen. And this is really important because as you see Jesus minister, he, he spoke to people differently. He spoke differently to Nicodemus, the, the religious teacher and leader, than he did to the woman at the well who'd been in five relationships. And so we need to kind of ask deeper questions so we can find out what's going on in this person. Who are they? What, what sort of experiences have they had in their life? And use that to ask those deeper questions. I have been building this relationship with, with this guy for a couple of years who's in our local area near the church. I was talking to him recently. He was telling me about his daughter who's had an ice addiction. And she's recovered from the ice addiction by going to these NA meetings. And he said that he'd gone along to the meetings with her. And it's interesting, like at that point there, you can, like in a conversation, you can start railing with them. Oh, yeah, the scourge of drugs today, you know, how terrible is it? And what's the government doing about it? And all that sort of business. You can have that conversation. Or you can actually find out more about what's going on. Tell me, what sort of things were they talking about at the NA meeting? How did it help her to, to like, get off, off the drugs? And so he was telling me about that and all this. And then we sort of had a pause in the conversation. And I asked him, I said, hey, can I ask you this? Do you think, like, a, someone like your daughter who's gone through that, do you think that they'd ever, like, go to a church to get help? And he sort of thought for a minute, and then he came back to me and he said, hmm, I think she probably would feel like she wouldn't be able to go there because people would look down on her. And, you know, people in churches, they can be very high and mighty, and they're all, everyone looks very clean and, you know, they don't suffer with problems like this. And so she'd feel like a fish out of water, I think. No, I don't, I don't think she would go. So I let it sit for a minute. And then I said, that's interesting, isn't it? Because when you go to the Gospels, like when you actually read in the Bible and the New Testament, what you see happen is, is Jesus, he goes to like the real religious places, like the places where everyone looks really clean and and put together, and he actually rebukes them, and he says, hey, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're like death within. You look good on the outside, but inside you're dying, and he really rebuked them, 
And the interesting thing is that he went out to the countryside, and when he went out to the countryside, he saw all these people who were afflicted with things like your daughter was. And he had compassion for them. And he had mercy. And they were people who really had come to the end of themselves. And they saw their, their need in a really powerful way. They saw that Jesus was really worth something. And that's all I said. And he stopped and he paused, I reckon, for 30 seconds. And he just had this big lump in his throat. Because he was thinking about his daughter, how much hope she had longed for and needed. And I, that's all I said. In fact, I don't even know how God might use that in his life. We'll see. But I think that at that point, that's, a, that's evangelism, that's being on mission, that's sharing by asking deeper questions and finding out what is going on in people's hearts. The last thing is this, is to receive their questions. I think this one is the thing that every one of us is most freaked out about. Because we're like, what if I can't answer the question? Like, what if they ask me, like, why does God allow suffering? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know why God allowed Like, you're sort of like scrambling for an answer. One thing I'll say to you is don't just start speaking. Because I've done that. It's terrible. You start speaking and you're like, no, this is terrible. Bring it back. You don't, you don't have to answer everyone's questions and like nail it to satisfy their intellectual thing. You don't, you don't need to. You just need to field their questions and, and share about it, talk about it, and go back and see if you can get the answer somewhere else and come back and keep the conversation going and put forward Christ. You know, the reality is, is that most times today, the objection and the questions are going to come about moral issues, particularly sexual ethics. That's, that's what they're all about. The questions are all about. And we have to make sure that even though we have dialogue on that, we have to make sure that we're not just putting forward a message of morality and that we're fighting this culture war because, you know, people aren't going to get their lives sorted out like that until they've met Christ. So they have to meet Christ first, and then he'll start to clean up and make it a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have to put forward Christ first, and we have to share Christ and read the, invite somebody to read the Bible with us and all of that, and we trust that Jesus is the power, there's power in his name, that is going to come and work in that person's life. So they're the six things. Your relationship with Jesus you can't give, which you don't have. Um, uh, a prevailing culture of prayer that we are communities of people who are sharing with one another, uh, people that we're praying for, building authentic relationships, sharing your story, asking deeper questions, and receiving their question. Now, I want to ask you this morning, as you think about your own heart, have you drifted a bit from the mission? And may, maybe that's because you've become a little bit distracted, you know, in your own walk with the Lord. It's not that sort of burning intimacy. And so there needs to be that recovery of, of the love that you had at first. Or maybe there's mission guilt that you have. You know, I've never mastered this. Well, the point is that you won't. And we, we trust in the sovereignty of God. We're free. We're not defined by works. Or maybe you're a little bit afraid. What if I'm rejected? I do think that the most important thing that overcomes all of those things is if we do rebuild that altar of worship in our hearts and in our lives, we come back to see that there's nothing else that's more important than knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And so we come back and we rebuild that altar 
altar before him. We worship here. I want to invite you to stand this morning. And I just thought it would be really good this morning to do something that's, that's practical, just because Jesus said, um, pray to the Lord of the harvest. So we're going to do that. We're just going to get into groups of four or five. Stay standing and just turn around. Someone lead and let's, let's pray. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers and that we might, that you might, as a church, rebuild that altar of worship so that your mission flows out of a loving relationship with him. Why don't we do that now? Just turn around, grab some people around you, one person lead.